A biblical scholarship tells us that 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's fourth letter to this church that he planted in his second missionary journey in Acts 18. And this is something in the early 50s AD. And since that time to the writing of this epistle, you could describe Paul's relationship with the Corinthian congregation as one that is a bit complicated. It took four letters, right? Sometimes it's tenuous, sometimes it's passionate, sometimes it's everything in between. And Paul was a, he was a passionate guy, right? He, he, would, he would write statements that out of um, much affliction and anguish of heart, he wrote to them through many tears. How many of us wrote it in no crying? Unless, you know, something went wrong in marriage or something. But no, he was, you know, he's a real passionate guy. He invested a lot in his churches. Yeah? And um, not only did Paul have to address issues of carnality being manifested within the church in the form of sexual, tolerated sexual immorality, divisive factions, spiritual snobbery. Some people were serving gifts looking at others with, I guess, what they would call lesser gifts. He had to deal with issues of disorderly worship. Um, but also, it didn't help matters that certain super apostles, as he calls them in chapter 11, verse 5, and um, chapter 12, verse 11, we have some of those today. It didn't help matters that certain super apostles came from the East, introducing doctrines of legalism, as well as questioning the very legitimacy of Paul's claim to apostleship. And these false apostles, so they were super apostles, now they are false apostles, as Paul calls them in 11.1, chapter 13. These false apostles often receive a hearing and even a following within this church of Corinth that the apostle Paul labors strenuously over. Um, so that would have been obviously a disappointing thing for him. In the three epistles preceding this one, the apostle often rebuked, challenged, tested, encouraged, and poured out his heart to this congregation. Paul's full apostleship was called into question on the basis of the things that he suffered. A kind of prosperity gospel was levied against him. How could someone who was so spirit-filled suffer such misfortune as he did through his life? And interestingly, Paul's response to this argument isn't to deny or obfuscate or the extent of his sufferings, but to emphasize that God is the one who brought suffering into his life, as he does for his people, in order to sanctify them, which is to make them more like his son, Jesus. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. Amen? I didn't hear any amen. Amen. So he tells the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. This is a man prepared today. These sufferings also equip them to, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 45, to be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are always in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. For the apostle, rather than distance himself from his afflictions and sufferings, he leans into them. As the ESV study Bible comments, 
Paul's sufferings embody the cross of Christ, while his endurance amid adversity with thanksgiving and contentment manifests the resurrection power of the Spirit. Paul's suffering as an apostle is thus the very means that God uses to reveal his glory. The very means. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul admittedly speaks like a madman. He starts to boast of his sufferings, boast of them, in order to distinguish himself from the false apostles. Yeah? But as we come into chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul appeals to something a little different, quite different, and profound as proof of his ministry as an apostle and that it is of the Spirit of God. So he asked a rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. It doesn't need letters of recommendation, yeah? So the answer is no. This is now his fourth letter, four letters. He has nothing to prove. He doesn't need to commend himself to them. Um, nor does he need letters of recommendation from some higher authority, perhaps the apostles to the east, in order for his ministry to be validated. Rather, he says in verse two to three, you yourselves, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts, some manuscripts say your hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts or hearts of flesh. Paul says that the letter of recommendation that validates his apostleship and his ministry are the Corinthians themselves. And this, and the way he says it is quite interesting. The Corinthians are a transformed church. A church that has gone from right carnality to all the issues I listed earlier, as manifested in Paul's earlier epistles, to one which Paul is ready to boast about in chapter 9 of this epistle. Amidst the years and the four epistles, including this one, they have grown in their sanctification and their holiness. This is evidence of the Spirit's work in their lives. This is the only evidence of the Spirit's work in any Christian's life. The only evidence. People cite miracles, people cite crisis events, but the only evidence that the Spirit has worked in your life is growth in sanctification and holiness. That's a fact, all right? Our Paul's point is to say, quote, I'm paraphrasing here, your sanctification and growth in holiness is evidence to us, it is evidence to you, and it's evidence to all men that our ministry is of the Spirit. That's why he says they are his letter of recommendation. Your transformed lives are our letters of recommendation from Christ delivered by us. Your transformational holiness is the proof of the validity of my apostleship. Yeah? So he roots the validity of his apostleship 
in their sanctification. And um, I think as, as an elder, but as anyone who has a ministry, even as a man who has a family, where the, the people on your ministry are directly your, your wife or your children, the evidence of the Spirit is energizing your ministry, that is all the ministry, is progressive sanctification and growth and holiness. Whether it be in your members, whether it be in your wife, we are supposed to be washing in the Word, according to Ephesians 5, or your children. And we take comfort from that amidst all of the stress and frustrations that, as you can see, were alien to Paul. Paul very well knew the frustrations of dealing with um, people under his care. Right? So his, their transformational holiness is proof of the validity of his apostleship. Then, later, then in the latter part of verse 3, seemingly out of nowhere, because this kind of, for me, goes on the pattern of what Paul is saying here. Paul employs a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Law and the Spirit, to further emphasize his point. And this is very interesting. The reference to the tablets of stone is undoubtedly a reference to the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, which the author there, which is Moses, emphasizes was, quote-unquote, written by the finger of God. This is later confirmed in the chapter where Paul references Moses and his reception of the second set of tablets he received from God atop Mount Sinai. So this is a contrast that occupies much of um, this chapter in Paul's letter. But by this statement, Paul takes us on a tangent in this epistle that reveals what I term as our glorious transformation in Christ. Paul is no doubt contrasting himself and his fellow servants in the New Covenant with Moses in the Old. Moses' letter of recommendation, so to speak, why well, listen to me carefully, Moses' letter of recommendation, so to speak, was a face that radiated with the glory of God in Exodus 34. Yeah? Paul's letter of transformation, or Paul's letter of recommendation, were the lives transformed by the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, let's take a diverging here and read Exodus. I read a bit from Exodus. Um, If you recall in Exodus, the prophet Moses received the covenant law, the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God. That's explicitly stated at the end of Exodus 31. In Exodus 32, he doesn't get down from the mountain before the people have broken the covenant. So he, Yeah. He hasn't been able to get down the mountain until the people have already broken the covenant. They're already, they're also ready to be done with Moses. They say in verse 1 of 32, 32, it says, For this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Um, so, Aaron, you lead us up. <laughs> but this is a different God, right? You remember. Moses descends, he sees the great sin, and he smashes the tablets at the foot of the mountain, where they had inaugurated the same covenant and broken the same covenant. The Lord is also ready to destroy these people. Yeah, he says, Moses, step aside. Let me consume them. I can make a great nation out of you. Moses intercedes on their behalf. And there's a lot of typology between Moses and Christ in those chapters. Yeah? 
The Lord commands that the people, so he intercedes successfully, and then the Lord commands that the people resume the journey, but without his presence, lest they be consumed. But Moses again intercedes on their behalf. So when we get to Exodus 34, the covenant is renewed, the tablets are replaced, and we read in verses 29 to 35, it says, it came about when Moses was coming out from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, as he was coming out from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. When Moses called them to him, and Aaron and all the rulers and the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, this is the time of meeting by this time, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel while had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him, meaning God. Now, wants to know that Moses' face did not shine the first time he descended the mountain with the first set of tablets in his hand. It did shine on the second time, on the second trip. Yeah? And I have argued, but well, at my church, I'm not sure what is argued at this church, but I've argued at my church that the second set of the tablets, unlike the first, were written, quote unquote, by the finger of God. The author is quite explicit about that. He says at the end of verse 31 that these tablets were written by the finger of God and then in, in, um, in Exodus 32 verse 16, just before Moses is about to smash the tablets, he says these are the same tablets that were engraved. It actually says the tablets were God's word and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. This is quite an artifact, right? I mean, not many ancient civilizations will be able to boast of an artifact that was literally engraved by the finger of God. These tablets were broken. Yeah? In the second set of tablets, we kind of miss the explicit pronouncement of this engraving of the second, the second set of tablets. Although, uh, I, you know, just so you know, Mario Michael Elder disagrees with me on this. So we have, you know, if you, if you don't agree, you know that. Because some people say that the second set of tablets were also engraved by finger of God. It's okay, you're not heretic. You know, you, you, you can agree to disagree on that, but the, that pronouncement is missing from the second set, and why would argue that Moses as the intercessor is emphasized in, in, the, uh, in the second coming down from Mount Sinai with the shining of the glory of God, right? So in the first, the, the, the law is really emphasized, or the first topics are really emphasized in the first trip. In the second trip, what comes down with notice? Or what comes down with much renown in the text is Moses and a shining face. But that's not, main, that's not my main point. When Paul looks, but when but Paul looks at this, when he contrasts himself with Moses in a way that makes his, his ministry superior to that of Moses, and says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Right? Now, 
for a first century Jew to kind of contrast himself with the Moses uh, in a way that makes his ministry superior to that of Moses takes a lot of confidence. A lot of confidence, right? He says, such is the confidence that we have. True Christ towards God. But before the reader takes Paul is getting carried away, he qualifies it in verse 5 to 6 and says, not that we ourselves, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul's main point here is that his ministry as a servant of the new covenant, made adequately so by God, is superior to the ministry of Moses as a servant of the old covenant, even though he came down from the mountain shining. Moses came down. Moses came down from the mountain first with a law written by the very finger of God, and second, and secondly, visibly shining with the law that while written on tablets of stone, that law did not transform its recipients. Okay? That law did not transform its recipients. It came with a lot of glory, but it did nothing for its recipients. However, Paul came to Corinth with a law written by the Spirit, not on stone tablets, but on the very hearts of its recipients, which did everything to transform them. And their transformation is evidence of the Spirit's work and the superiority of his ministry to that even of Moses. Okay? Now that's bold stuff to say right there. That's pretty bold. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses. So the idea is that Moses was not bold. And you're going to see why. But Paul says, and you know, scholars have accused Paul of being a very bold person. With good reason, right? But he says, since we have such a hope, we are not just bold, very bold. Not like Moses. And I'm going to read the rest later. In verses 3 to 7, Paul then employs a series of contrasts between the Old Covenant and the New to solidify his confidence and bold assertions. Sorry, my son, I just keep thinking if I always talk so me. <laughs> he refers to the Old Covenant as a ministry of death. Verse, in verse 7, which implies by contrast that the New Covenant is a ministry of life. He always refers to the Old Covenant as a ministry, well, sorry, he also refers to the, the, the Old Covenant as a ministry of condemnation and the New Covenant as a ministry of justification. That's verse 9. But the idea contained in the contrast is this, that the Old Covenant equals letter, death, condemnation, New Covenant, spirit, life, justification. No, we want to be careful and, and say that Paul here is not commenting on the intrinsic nature of the old covenant law. Not at all. This is the same Paul who a few years later writes in his letter to the Romans that we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Rather, so we're not commenting on it, on it we're not commenting, he's not commenting, commenting on the intrinsic um, nature of the old covenant law. The law is intrinsically good. 
and it is spiritual even though the contrast here is between letter and spirit yeah rather in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 the apostle is speaking to how the covenant serves us the term ministry comes from the Greek diakonia from which we get our word servant or deacon right so he's talking about how the covenant serves us the law is good the law is spiritual but it serves us death and condemnation because we are lawbreakers that's what, that's what it serves us yeah as Paul said we are all flesh in bondage to sin the law does nothing to transform us or even to free us from sin it only serves us death and condemnation unfortunately that's what it serves us that, and as we would say it's not its fault that's our fault Amen? But the Spirit, on the other hand, the Spirit serves us, is a minister of, the Spirit is a deacon of transformation. He regenerates. He frees us from the bondage to sin. He serves to bring us life and soul eternally. And that is absolutely glorious, and Paul agrees. Paul agrees, right? The old covenant law came with much glory. I mean, think about, I think you guys are actually asked this some time ago, right? But think about how that, how that ministry came. We had a mountain on fire. We had a mountain wrapped in cloud. We had a host of angels. We had trumpets. We had earthquakes. I mean, we even had men seeing God in Exodus 24. Right? How many people can walk around and say, I, see, I saw God. I had a meal. Not many, right? We are talking about artifact of stone tablets engraved by the very finger of God. The spectacles described in the Exodus account are absolutely magnificent. How could Paul look at this and say something like what he does in verse 10? He says, for indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. And you're like, what? When did your face shine, Paul? <laughs> Yeah? But when we speak about glory, this is a word kabod in the Hebrew, or doxes in the Greek, we're speaking about an idea of honor, of value, of weightiness. You know, somebody tell you before you like, man, that's heavy. You could probably say, man, that's, that's pretty glorious, right? Yeah? You're talking about honor, value, weightiness. As a matter of fact, uh, kabod, which comes from the Hebrew kabad, speaks to something that is heavy or weighty. Um, like Pharaoh's chariot wheels in Exodus chapter 14 verse 25 when God made the wheels heavy right? it's the same term right? God is said to have made their chariot wheels kabadoof, very heavy some things are more glorious and weighty than others and some truths are more weighty than other truths right? I usually tell people that you know there's a lot when I am evangelizing informally this means having a discussion yeah. You know, people want to tell me all sorts of things about this and that and aliens and UFO and Buddha and stuff like that. And I am saying, listen buddy, the most weighty truth you need to understand right now is that 2,000 years ago, a guy came out the grave. And there's nothing you've just anything that you've said to me that is more weighty than that. That's more glorious than that. The gospel is one of the most glorious truths. Amen? That God became a man. I mean, you can stop there and you already surpass everything that human, the human record has, has concocted. But that God became a man, lived a life of righteousness, perfectly on the law, died, 
and three days later, rose from the dead. Never to die again. When you talk about readiness, what it means for you and for me, what it means about these big questions about the purpose of life, or as scientists call the theory of everything, what can be more weighty than that? Amen? Amen. So that's how we measure glory. That's how we measure weightiness. Right? And definitely, some things are more weighty than others. Some truths are more weighty than others. And so, for the Apostle Paul to make the statement that he does, what he means is that even though the Old Covenant came with much fanfare and spectacle, in terms of its service, what it effected for its recipients who were slaves to sin was only death and condemnation. As glorious as it was, it only effected for them death and condemnation. But when compared to the new covenant, which effected for its recipients freedom from life, freedom from sin, sorry, life and justification, whatever glory or readiness we would ascribe to the old covenant pales in comparison to the new. Amen? That which transforms us by that which transforms us by writing the law of God on our hearts is more glorious than that which only writes the law of God on tablets, even if the tablets are engraved by the finger of God. That which works life in us is much more glorious than that which works death, even though it came with much divine fanfare. That which serves us justification is much more glorious than that which serves us condemnation, even though God himself was visibly seen by men. Yeah? And that which remains forever and never fades is far more glorious than that which, while glorious for a time, eventually fades away. When compared and when weighed, if you put these two things in scales and you weigh them for their glory, Amen? Indeed, it is true. What had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. So Paul says in verse 12 to 13, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Remember, when Moses came from the presence of God, he did not veil his face because the Israelites were somehow afraid. That's not the reason why. Rather, he would let the Israelites see his face radiating the glory of God's presence, but when he was finished speaking with them, he would veil his face until the next time he was in God's presence so that the Israelites would not perceive that the glory which he radiated was fading away. Understand that? He didn't veil himself so they wouldn't look at a shiny face. He veiled himself so that they wouldn't see that the, the shining actually diminished over time. And this is why he would do that. Then when he would go in the spirit of God, he would take off the veil. He would get, you know, he would charge up, so to speak. And then he would come and say, hey guys, it's me, I'm shining, listen to me. Right? This is why the shining face serves to validate Moses as um, who he is, as that intercessor that stood in the place for these covenant breakers. That's a different sermon. Alright? Even though Moses came out from God's presence shining, he was not bold. And I find that interesting. How many of us will speak with God, come out of the place shining, and hide it? We were running Boston and say, Yeah, man, look at me. I'm a super apostle. I'm shining. No, but he wasn't bold. 
right? He was not bold, not like the apostle, because the people to whom he was a minister of the old covenant were of a hardened heart. That's why he wasn't bold. All this glory, but the people that he was ministering to were of a hardened heart. Moses basically veiled the fact that his radiant glory was fading in order not to contribute to the hardness of heart and the unbelief of the people of Israel. Moses concealed the fact that this radiant glory of the old covenant was extrinsic and not intrinsic because he was dealing with a people whose obedience and faith was external, not internal. But when Paul speaks to the Corinthians, unlike Moses, he is very bold because even though his face isn't shining, even though he suffers much affliction, some even said of him in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. That's all the that's all the, that's all the data Paul. Yeah? Even though all of these things, in spite of this, Paul is very bold. Why? Because the people to whom he is a minister of the new covenant in Christ have been regenerated, transformed by the Spirit. And over the course of several years, several letters, and several reports, they have evidenced this spiritual reality in their progressive sanctification, and that's why Paul is bold. That's why they are his letters of recommendation. Amen? That's all the world lives between him and Moses in this context. The recipients and their, their, their non-transformation versus their transformation um, in the ministry or the administration of their covenant. And Paul continues in verse 14 to use this episode from Exodus 34 as a met metaphorical device to pronounce on those who have held on to the old covenant in rejection of Christ in the new as the hearts of the Israelites were hardened back then in Exodus 34, so too, so too the hearts of Israelites during Paul's time, and even till this day, are hardened whenever they read the Old Covenant because the same veil remains. The same concealment that the glory of the Old Covenant is, is a fading glory. That the Old Covenant serves up only death and condemnation because its recipients are enslaved, sinful lawbreakers, regardless of whatever external glory it came with, that same concealment remains. As Paul says at the end of verse 14, the only way that veil, that concealment is taken away is in Christ. He says in verse 16 to 17, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We can see here that the idea of veil or concealment is wrapped up with our doctrines of regeneration or being born again, of transformation. It's wrapped up in our doctrines regarding enslavement to sin versus enslavement to righteousness, right? Romans 6. To be born again is to have the Spirit write the law of God on hearts of flesh rather than hearts of... Sorry. Rather than tablets of stone. Right? A hearts of flesh, obviously a tablet of stone, is referencing, is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, 26. To be regenerated is to be able to see and to enter the kingdom of Christ. The concealment ends in Christ. The concealment ends in Christ. Christ reveals to us 
the inadequacy and externality of the old covenant to minister or serve us anything that could rightly be considered glorious. And so, because we are sinners. Christ demonstrates for us what a sinless person is. He demonstrates for us what a person who keeps law perfectly is. Right? And what a person who is not in bondage to sin looks like. And when we look at Christ, we realize we are not that. We are not that. So if you learn anything from looking at Christ, learn that you are not Christ. Yeah. Amen? If you learn nothing else. We see in him what a person who is not in bondage to sin looks like. And the fact that none of us has, we have never, there's not a man that waters earth that has ever looked at him. In Christ, we recognize that we need not just freedom from some earthly slave master, as the Israelites did. We need not just the law. And we even say we need not just only God's presence. Not just an intercessor. We need redemption from our slavery to sin. We need the inner spiritual working realities of transformation, regeneration, and sanctification. And that is a point I cannot stress enough. God can stand here, God can come right at me and stand up. I put his hand on me and do all. If he does not change me internally, I am marvel at the fact that. The Israelites were at the foot of a mountain, on fire, receiving manna from heaven, and water flowed from the mountain to sustain them, and within 40 days, rebelling. And it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and say, man, boy, those people are real stiff-necked. But we have to see ourselves in the Israelites. And apart from the inner transformation of God, we are them. So praise God that you are here today, and that John could be bold, like Paul, right? Because of your progressive sanctification and growth in holiness. We can be bold. Amen? We need redemption from slavery. We need inner spiritual working realities of regeneration, transformation, sanctification. And this is not only applicable to Jews reading Moses, but this is applicable to everyone who is in bondage to sin. And that's all of us, or was, let me use past tense. Such were some of you, right? And that's all of us because as Christ said in John chapter 8 verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So there's no one who commits sin who is like a part-time sinner. Yeah? Oh, that's just 1%. No, no, you are a slave. You are in bondage to sin. Once you commit it, you're a slave to it. But he says in verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. And thank God, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. There's liberty. Where the, where, the, where the Spirit is, there is freedom. If you've been born again, you've been transformed by the Spirit, you are free. I praise God for that. I correlate that, I cross reference that with, John, with Jesus' statement in John 8, verse 31. He says, if you continue in my word, this is the word of Christ, then, truly you are, you, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. So there's a correlation between the Spirit and Christ's words, knowing that word, obeying that word, and being free. When we believe and become obedient to the gospel, the quote-unquote my word, as Jesus calls it in John, excuse me, in John 8, 31, what Paul calls in Romans chapter 6, verse 17 as that form of teaching which you were committed to, 
when we believe and become obedient to this gospel, when we repent of our sins and confess Jesus as both Lord and Savior of ourselves, then though we were slaves of sin, veiled, though we, we are freed and become instead slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification and in the end, eternal life. What the Apostle Paul says in verse 18 is truly remarkable. He says that we all, him, the Corinthians, even us here today, we all in the liberty of the Spirit and by, the, and by his powerful working, remember that the Lord is the Spirit, right? In this text. We all, without veil or concealment or quote-unquote, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The ESV says in the footnote, reflecting the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And this means that as we behold the Lord, the sinless one, the righteous one, the risen one, the truly glorious one, as we behold the glory of Christ, we radiate his glory in our faces as the Spirit, the Lord transforms us from glory to glory into that same image. Amen? Want me to repeat that? Okay. When we behold the Lord, the sinless one, the righteous one, the risen one, the truly glorious one, the one who has the most weight, he has the most weight in human history. When we behold the glory of Christ, we radiate his glory in our faces as the Spirit, the Lord, transforms us from glory to glory into that same image. To be clear, this does not mean we are walking around with shiny faces. Okay? Like Moses did. And that was a glory which faded out with time. I wish Moses failed. What this does mean is that as we walk with the Lord, we see more and more of the glories of Christ, his sinlessness, his character, his wisdom, as one of said, his gravitas. We see more and more of him in ourselves as we look at ourselves without a veil. This is a glory that fades in and it is eternal. Unlike a glory that fades out and is temporal. Amen? This is a glory that emanates from the Lord's presence within rather than a glory that emanates from a presence external to us as it was with Moses. When we consider these things, indeed he has made us adequate servants of his covenant and our transformed lives Transform climatically, transform progressively, transform eschatologically, or transform lives or testimony to the immense glory of God. You are letters of recommendation of God's glory. You put that way. The very purpose for which He originally made us and remade us in Christ Jesus. All to the glory of God, in the Lord, through the Spirit, and let the church say, Amen.